Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. It is so good to see everybody. Uh, I'm here with Jeremy. Um, we are in Jerusalem broadcasting from here because we're going straight from here to a very important event. Um, hopefully we'll be talking about that a little bit more soon, but we're going to go together. Um, but uh, just leading up to the fellowship, we're getting the technicals working. I'm looking at all of your pictures, and it's so good to to see all of you. I hear from so many of you throughout the week, which I'm grateful for, and I strongly encourage you to continue to reaching out to me. I really love it, whether it's a thought or question, a challenge, whatever it is. Um, but uh, it's nice to be able to go through the screens and see your faces as well. Um, we are in a very critical time in Israel's history, in Jewish history, uh, clearly in world history. And with each of these fellowships, I feel like they're growing in critical importance uh, for, for me, for each and every one of us, I think. It feels like a great responsibility. And sometimes I feel like I'm blessed to rise to the occasion, and other times I feel like I don't quite got it. And when that happens, I feel like I've let you down. But during those moments, my greatest consolation is that it's not all on my shoulders. I have Jeremy, I have Tehila that have been really sharing some very high-level truth, consistently putting out very powerful messages of prophecy and strength and encouragement. And so having said that, before I even launch into what I have to share, um, it is definitely my great honor and joy to introduce Jeremy, right? Right. And you'll be introducing Tehila. And that's how this is going to go. So I have zero doubt they have beautiful things to share. I want to oh. show you guys something really quick. Look at Ari's. We know we, we have like the military gear on. Look at Ari's patch. Do you, you know, there's patches now that they're handing out and everyone has to choose which patch they want. So Ari's, his says Mashiach. That's a cool patch. Mine there, if you could see that. Mine is for the temple in Jerusalem. That's a cool patch. And then, of course, we have the Ari fold patch. You get that in there? I, I lost my Ari Fold patch. Of course you But did. can I just tell you, a, a group of soldiers came up to me, a big group, and one of them said, oh, Mashiach patch, where where, where do I get that? And I'm like, I have to tell you where, where I got it. I was walking through the Shuk in, you know, the, the marketplace in downtown Jerusalem, and this guy comes up to me, and it's Nachlaot, so there's like hippies, and he has like a kafia on, he's a Jew, he's a, a Jalabiya, I don't know. He pulls out this flask. I don't know what it is. He opens it. He pours it on my face and it's this olive oil and it's in my eyes. And then I go like this. I open my eyes. He's gone, disappeared. There's smoke coming up from the cafe and the Jalabia. And this is on my shoulder. Okay. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. <laughs> That's thank a joke. You. It didn't really happen, That's but tough. it's a funny way to say it. it's, it's more interesting than the truth. <laughs> yes, that is definitely more interesting than the truth. Okay. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> okay. So, um, all right, so I, I'm going to shift gears now away from Ari's cuckoo, and I'm going to tell you guys what um, I've been thinking a lot about. Um, uh, one of the most remarkable things about the Tanakh, which is different than any other spiritual scripture that I know of, is that there is a constant focus on how the people of Israel are called to be better. Every time something bad happens to us, it's never God's fault. It's never the enemy's fault. It's always our responsibility. And the action is always inward saying, what did we do wrong? How can we repent? How can we emerge stronger from this catastrophe? How do we realign ourselves? How do we return to the path that we're destined to walk? It's always a reflexive response going inside. 
And since October 7th, I can't help but just constantly asking myself, how did we get it so wrong? You read the news articles and it's mind-blowing how just the intelligence agencies that were wrong and they had the information, but they didn't act on the information and they had the information, but they didn't send it to the government. And why didn't the government act? And how did the billion dollar fence, I mean, the fence that was made there, the most technological border in the whole world was just walked through. There's actually one video I was trying to find that I couldn't find it, but there's like a man, an old, an elderly man on crutches that's walking through the fence. And you're like the most technologically advanced fence. And there's just this old Gazan man that's going to plunder the Jews that have been attacked by the militants. And you're like, the fence couldn't stop the old man on crutches. Like something has to have happened here that we need to look deep inside. And all throughout the Torah, there is a key. There is one thing more than any other thing, one attribute that more than any other attribute that defines our success in the land of Israel. And you see it from the very beginning of the story of Israel. You hear it from the story of Moses. But I just want to really drive this point home. I want to watch this video of the, just the hubris, the arrogance sounding, the music behind it about the achievement of the most technological fence in all of the world. It's like the Titanic all over again. <laughs> But can you imagine the most sophisticated thing from here to Athens, from Australia, the amount of concrete, the amount of iron. This is the most amazing fence that's going to protect. I am here to declare the security and safety of the people of Israel. And who is going to save us? The fence is going to protect us. And I can't help but look to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's the get-go, Moses' final speech to the people of Israel. As you enter into the land, then you may say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this success, and you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to succeed, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. So God is saying, I'm making a testimony here. The verses right before say, and your heart will be lifted so high. 
you'll become so arrogant to think that your strength and your power and your technology and your fence, the people literally just walked through the fence. They just walked through. Yeah, they had tunnels that went down to stop the walls and the security cameras. But in the end, they just took a big tractor and made a hole in the fence and people just walked through. Because if we are so arrogant, the essence of arrogance is forgetting God. In fact, I would posit that you cannot really truly be a good person if you don't believe in God. And I know a lot of people are like, well, huh? I know a lot of good people that they're, but not really. Because if you don't believe in God and you're very smart and you're very talented and you have an amazing fence and you have great technology, then really, what are you? You're just arrogant inherently because my power and my strength and my engineers and my technology and my success is from me, me, me. And then God says, I want you to know that's the one thing. The one thing I'm telling you before you enter into the land of Israel is don't let your heart be lifted up and don't say my power and my strength will bring me our success in the land of Israel. The key attribute is humility and humility is inherently connected to our belief in a higher power saying who gave me my strength? Who gave me my intelligence? Who gave me my wisdom? Who gave me my life? God. That humility can only come from a place of acknowledging a higher power. That humility, which is essential to our success in the land of Israel, can only come from God. And who is to teach us that? The leader of Israel that's going to bring us into the land and prepare us for 40 years along the journey. And with that, I wanted to introduce you to, um, to Hila Gimpel. Now, as you know, Tehila, in many, many ways, like very narrow elements of our lives together, do I really call the shots. Maybe if we're talking about military strategy, about how to protect our farm, maybe I have an edge on her in like very narrow elements. But in general, she is just better than me and smarter than me. And so I yield to her wisdom more often than not. And she taught me this um, real teaching, and it's deep. And it's been formulating over the last month or so. And she finally put it all together now. And it is exactly the answer to everything that we've spoken up until now. The cure or the keys to our success in the land of Israel are actually encoded all throughout the life of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses. And Tehillah puts it all together through the Hebrew language in a way that I've never seen before. And you will absolutely Hi, love everyone. this. Uh, so I want to revisit an idea that we started talking about a few weeks ago, and I want to develop it a little further. I want to argue that the character of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, the one who was chosen to take us from point A to point B of exile to redemption in his life can reveal to us the keys that are necessary 
for that journey. And if ever there was a time that we needed the key to that journey, it's certainly now. So this idea relates to this week's portion, but really to all of the Torah from the book of Exodus and on till the end is a kind of meta idea that I think that can highlight for us in our own spiritual lives and as our nat in, as part of our you know, collective national lives, uh, how to go from that place of exile spiritually and physically to a place of redemption and inheritance of the land of Israel. So, you know, as we're reading these portions about the plagues, it's hard to avoid this word that keeps repeating itself. In English, the punishments that are rained down on Egypt are referred to as plagues, but in Hebrew, they're called makot, which literally means hits, to be stricken, to be like swacked. And the hitting is not just in the description of the plagues. There's this constant act of actual physical striking, like in uh, chapter seven, verse 20, Moshe literally hits the water to turn it into blood. In uh, you know, 8, 11, they're called to hit the earth to, to make the, the lice. And so, you know, the makot are physically and spiritually whooping the Egyptians. And the way that they're brought about is this actual physical symbolic act of hitting. And now what's so interesting is that if we look back to the beginning of Moshe's life, it's not the first time we see this repetitive appearance of this word maka, to strike. So we don't know that much about Moshe's early life growing up in Pharaoh's palace. We only see this snapshot of these two days in his entire life as a young man in Egypt. That's it. And both stories, interestingly enough, are characterized by this particular word. In chapter 2, verse 11, we see that Moshe grows up. And it says, It came to pass in those days that Moshe grew up and went out to his brothers and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brothers. Now, it says that he turned this way and that way, and he saw there was no man. You know, some people understand that as like, he saw that he wouldn't get in trouble, but you know, our sages teach us that he saw that there was no one being the man that needed to be there in that moment to fight up against, you know, fight against the, the evil and the oppression, so he did it. And then he, it says in verse 12, he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now notice that these two verses describing the very first day we meet Moshe as like a person, not a baby, it uses this word. It was the Egyptian giving a makah to the Hebrew, like striking the Hebrew, and Moshe striking the Egyptian. Now there are a million billion words that could have been used to say this thing. You could have said the Egyptian was abusing or killing. Or, there's all these different words that can be used again. Why the same word that we're gonna see again in the plagues? Now what's so interesting is in general, we know that Moshe's most prominent attribute as a human being is a humble person. The Torah says he was the most humble person in the world. Now I always thought Moshe's just humble. It's like he was born that way. That's why Hashem chose him. But if you look at the very few, you know, few verses that we have about him, it does not seem obvious that his inherent natural personality is characterized by this kind of timidity that you would imagine a really humble person having. According to these verses, he steps out in the world, he sees evil, he sees oppression, he looks around, sees no one's being a man. He's like, well, I'm going to be a man. I'm going to fight against evil. And he strikes the Egyptian and he makes this like act of heroic vigilante justice. What does it mean to strike? He's like changing reality. And now you would imagine Obviously, Pharaoh's not gonna be so happy about this. So he buries him in the sand. Now you might say, fine, you know, maybe he was usually humble and timid, and this was just like an exception. This was like a different day. But if that was true, you know, if this was just an exception in his personality, he would go out and lay low. But the verse says that the next day he goes out to do it again. He goes out, to, like, what does he think is gonna happen? That it's gonna be really nice out there? He knows he's gonna see evil again in the world, so he goes out again. But now it's deeper than that. Think about this. Moshe buried the Egyptian in the sand, but who, so the Egyptian couldn't tell the tale, but who could tell the tale? That Jew that he saved. Now, I imagine that he thinks of two possibilities. Either the Jew 
is you know going to tell his brothers listen this most amazing thing happened to me this guy saved me and uh you know but they'll be so like scared they'll just kind of lay low and keep it to themselves or maybe it would start some sort of grassroots rebellion right like people will be like hey we can fight against our oppressors that's amazing let's call that guy and maybe he'll be our leader and so you know those are kind of like the two options i imagined moshe envisioning but neither of those happen. He goes out the next day, seemingly ready to keep on tackling evil in the world. And what happens is he sees two Jewish people fighting. And he says, hey, why are you guys fighting? Like, there's so many more important things to be doing. We have Egypt to fight against. Why are you fighting with each other? Now, the verses are short, but you can imagine there's a whole conversation there. Like, guys, come on. Really, let's try to have some unity. Let's do some tshuva. Let's do some repentance. Now, what do they say to him? It says, he went out in verse 13 in uh, chapter 2. It says, he went out on the second day, and behold, two Hebrew men were quarreling, and he said to them, oh, wicked one, why, why would you strike your friend? Now, it doesn't say in the actual story that they were striking one another. That's his words, meaning we're again seeing this word of Maka. What's bothering him is like, why are you guys striking each other? The second story in his life has again this repeated word of hitting. And then what does the guy answer, Moshe? He says, who made you a man, a prince and a judge over us? Do you plan to slay me as you've slain the Egyptian? And then Moses became frightened and said, indeed, the matter has become known. And then it says in verse 15, Pharaoh heard of this incident and he sought to slay Moses. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So now you can imagine Moshe's thinking, look, you know, there's a guy who was a witness to this killing of the Egyptian, but he's probably going to be grateful, right? And what he finds out is not only that the guy wasn't grateful and quiet, not only did they talk about it, not only did that not start some kind of gratitude or grassroots rebellion or some sort of like, at least, you know, uh, kindness towards him, it actually led to them doing the exact opposite of betraying him to Egypt, to the actual oppressor. And, you know, like the way that they're looking at Moshe is certainly not as the most humble man. They're saying, what are you, our boss? Like what, they're, they're being terribly oppressed by the Egyptians. And their biggest fear is that Moshe is somehow oppressing them by like being a little bit bossy and telling them not to fight. They dig in the knife so deep and they say, Moshe, we know what you did. Like, what are they hinting? It's like a very thinly veiled, threat that they're going to go behind his back and tell the king and then in verse 15 they really do that meaning there's no way that pharaoh heard about it except for from a jew because the only witness that actually was there was that jew that got away because the egyptian was killed and buried in the sand so you have these slaves being tyrannized by this horrible government but they themselves go rat out moshe to that very government and at that point that he runs away because this is not what he envisioned, right? Like that he would help people and have the best of intentions and then his very brothers that he's trying to help would betray him. And then he can't even turn back and go back home and say, forget about these Jews, I'll go back and be a good Egyptian because his own father, Pharaoh, who raised him as, like a, as if he was his father, has already rejected him and wants to kill him too. Can you imagine Moshe's feeling? You know, a lot of psychologists will say that, you know, um, that, that like the greatest traumas are not from bad things happening to you, but they're from this feeling of just like helplessness in the face of horrible things happening. And so you have this kind of terribly helpless and alone feeling that Moshe has. And so there's something so interesting happening in the story. The story is showing us that it wasn't that Moshe was just coincidentally genetically predisposed to be the most humble person in the world. He became humble. He was humbled. The way you become the leader of Israel, the way that you become worthy of redemption is by becoming humble. And you know, he had this audacity and courage and moral clarity, but he just 
wasn't at least perceived by his brothers as being humble. But then we know him later to be the most humble person on earth. How did he get there? It was from the most humbling experience on earth of being rejected by everyone, of everything you try doing, just failing. And then Moshe is in the desert. He's practically starving to death. He went from being a prince to total homelessness. And he just barely manages to kind of put cobbled together a life for himself in Midian and then Moshe is at the bush and Hashem tells him go strike at the empire go hit Paro isn't he not like the person who's supposed to be like yes finally I've been waiting for this but he's been so humbled that he doesn't have it in him anymore and Hashem says no 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 you don't understand what real humility is supposed to be it's not supposed to lead you to inaction it says that the Lord said to him this is in chapter uh, 4 verse 11 it says who gave man a mouth who makes one dumb or deaf or blind is it not I Hashem you know, uh, so it, and it says in verse 12, so now go, I will be with your mouth. I will instruct you what you shall speak. What we see here is that there's this characteristic of humility. It's as if the story is saying to us that Moshe started out his life with conceptually the right idea and the right plan and the right moral clarity, but not necessarily the exact precise spiritual posture that's needed because Hashem hadn't told him to go strike the Egyptian and now this isn't obviously a critique on Moshe like as if I can criticize Moshe. Moshe on his worst day is obviously a spiritual giant and better than any of us on our best day but you know in order to tackle the giant task of redeeming Israel someone has to be more than just amazing they have to be like a perfectly tuned instrument and this characteristic of humility we're being taught needs to be perfectly refined and what is it to be perfectly refined in that there was the way that Moshe was in the beginning which is like yes I can do this why don't we strike back at the empire you don't see him consulting Hashem or being guided by Hashem or being concerned with Hashem or telling people this is Hashem's will or speaking in the name of Hashem we see him just doing this on his own and then we see him at the bush he's become crushed he's become crushed by his life and he just says to him yeah send whoever you're gonna send and he he's become so humbled that he has no strength left in him to act out Hashem says, no, 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 there's a space between there and there. There's the middle ground of knowing that Hashem is with you. None of this is from you. It's only from Hashem, but that doesn't lead you to inaction. That leads you to action, but in a knowledge that all of your strength comes from Hashem. So now I feel like this would be a great place to stop, except for that the rest of Moshe's life is characterized again by hitting. Just like these first two episodes of hitting in his life, one was like improper hitting of the Egyptians and one was the successful hitting of the Egyptians. We have another pair, one properly and one improperly, because right in this coming week's Parsha, we see in chapter 17, verse 5, that the people want water. What does Hashem say? He's just finished striking the Egyptians and says, the Lord said to Moshe, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take into your hand, listen to this part, your staff with which you struck the Nile and go before I shall stand there before you behold I shall stand there before you on the rock in Horeb and you will take you will strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink and then it says that Moshe did so before the eyes of the elders of Israel now the wording here is so interesting because Hashem emphasizes this is being done by Moshe, but it says in the presence of Hashem. Now, what's also really interesting is that Hashem says, take the staff with which you struck the Nile, meaning Moshe only has one staff that we know of. And he could have said like, hey, you know that staff you used to split the sea, which is arguably a more impressive uh, thing and certainly more recent. He says to Moshe, 
the one you used to strike the Nile. How, what did you use it to strike the Nile for? That was to strike the Egyptians in the proper way. That was when you had a complete understanding of your acting in the name of Hashem through the strength of Hashem. So he says to Moshe, stay in that state of mind. And in that state of mind, you're going to strike the rock. That's going to be your spiritual posture. And then the next verse, we see that it actually works because it says he named the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the children of Israel and because of their testing of the Lord saying, is the Lord in our midst or not? Meaning there was this certain doubt among Israel, is Hashem here or not? And in Moshe acting, Somehow it was clear to them that that wasn't Moshe himself, but that that was a sign of Hashem's presence. So meaning he was able to sanctify Hashem's name in the actual like proof in the pudding. That's how the people perceived it. He was able to sanctify Hashem's name because they saw that his actions were essentially a vessel for Hashem in the world. So something about what was being done there leaves this impression on Israel that Hashem is in fact with them. But then the end of the journey in Bamidbar in the book of Numbers in chapter 20, we hear again a similar story where Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock and he said to them, now listen you rebels, can we draw water for you from this rock? Now there are endless you know, explanations for what precisely went wrong here, but just looking at this simple meaning, there's really a presentation perhaps to the people that this is something that we are doing and then it says you know after that happened again the proof being in the pudding the the impact that that had on the people was not similar to the impact that it had on them the first time they did not suddenly say wow Hashem is with us Hashem says in verse 12 there the Lord said to Moses and Aaron since you did not have faith in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them for whatever reason and our sages have many many explanations for what precisely went wrong but whatever precisely went wrong the impression that was given over to the people was not one of them doing this second striking of the rock in in a way that conveyed that it was really completely from Hashem. He says, Moshe, this is the reason that you're not the right leader to complete this Gitmula process, this redemption process of going into the land. So now there's this very interesting and little known Midrash, we spoke about this already, on the death of Moshe. Moshe is having an argument with Hashem and he doesn't want to die. He wants to go into the land and he brings all of his claims. He says, I'm better than Adam. I didn't take any fruits. And he says, I'm better than Noah. Noah didn't fight to save humanity. And I fought to save the Jewish people. I'm better than Abraham. I didn't make Ishmael in the world. And I'm better than Isaac. I didn't make Esau in the world. And he's bringing all of his arguments. And Hashem's like, no, 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 no. And then he says, well, what is it? What have I done wrong? Why can't I keep on living and go into the land? Now, seemingly, you don't need a midrash to answer this because you're like, uh, yeah, we know the answer. It's written in the verses. You hit the rock. What does the midrash say? It says that Hashem answers him, it's because you killed the Egyptian. Now, that's a weird thing because we've never heard Hashem say anything bad about that. And then Moshe says, but you killed a ton of Egyptians. And Hashem says, but you're not God. So now the way midrash works is midrash doesn't spoon feed us what it wants us to think. The Midrash knows that you can think on your own, so it sends you on a journey through the verses to try to come to the conclusion on your own. And so when there's something here that you think it's supposed to say, and then it points to a different answer, what that's trying to show you is that those two things are connected. There's a connection between the second hitting of the rock and the first hitting of uh, the Egyptian. And so now if we look at it all together, we have this beautiful nested structure. The two bookends of Moshe's life are characterized by imperfect hitting of the Egyptian or the rock. Again, not to say as if we can criticize Moshe, he's the greatest person to have ever lived, but as a lesson to us through the elements of their life, there's something to teach us. And so then the middle part of his life is characterized by two correct and perfectly refined hittings, strikings, where Moshe is able to strike the Egyptians, to strike the rock in a way that leads people to see Hashem in the world. It leads the Egyptians 
Jews to understand that there is Hashem. It leads the Jews to understand that Hashem is giving them water. And it's like, this is a lesson for us to what exactly we need to refine in order to merit redemption and going into the land of Israel. And the Torah is really clear on this because Moshe himself is really clear on this in Devarim, Deuteronomy 8. Moshe is preparing us there to come into the land and he tells us what is our biggest danger. Biggest danger in Israel, not gonna be your enemies not going to be natural disasters, not going to be droughts. The greatest danger we're going to face is our own success and wealth, because what will that do to us? It will cause our hearts to be haughty, meaning the opposite of humility, which is Moshe's characteristic. It says that your heart will grow haughty in, in uh, chapter eight. It says, and you'll forget the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, and listen to this, who led you through the great and awesome desert where there are snakes and vipers and scorpions and drought and where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a solid rock. It's like drawing it all together. He's like, the lesson that I learned from the rock is the lesson that you need to learn from the rock, which is the lesson that if you are going to strike at reality, try to change reality, try to make action in the world against evil, the only way you can do it is from a place of perfectly perfected and tuned in humility where you understand that every action that you do can only be done through the strength that Hashem gives you and so he says if you don't remember that and you know this is the what you know he says in, in, in verse right after this that you're going to start thinking that the strength of your hand has done all this might for you we're warned that the outcome of that is we will perish in the land and so it's like giving us this warning saying pay attention to this story and understand that this is what needs to be refined to inherit the land and when we look at our current situation here in Israel we can so see, easily see that the characteristic of humility is what we are being driven to work on because just as Moshe did not start humble per se you know in the in a perfected level of humbleness we certainly are not humble Israel has been brought to its knees with all of our technology and might and wealth literally a ragtag band of terrorists have brought us into such a painful and terrible situation and you know and that is certainly humbling and not to say humiliating and what that can do is you know th that humbling is a necessary part it's like the Torah is guiding us to understand that this is part of the plan being humbled is a necessary part of inheriting the land because you mustn't think that you have the strength and if you listen to there's just endless videos of all the different army generals talking about how protected we are because we have cameras and because we have technologies and because we have iron dome and you just hear these videos and you want to just go oh my god how could they ha how could we all have been so haughty and not remembered that this is the like this is the ultimate message of the story of Moshe's life. This is the constant reminder that we have in the Torah is to refine this characteristic of humility. But now what could happen to us in this situation? We could just become crushed in our spirits. We can just say, this is so hopeless. Like we've just tried to make our little wobbly need nation. We've tried to make a good nation. We're trying to be good people. And you know, we've been so humbled. Oh, we just should give up. And the lesson of Moshe's life is the lesson that we get at the burning bush that says, no, 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 no. To have refined humility is not to say I'm worthless and I'm nothing. It's to say I can strike back at evil. I can bring this makkah. I can bring this, you know, uh, uh, you know, force that I will use my strength against darkness and evil in the world. But it's only going to be effective if you take that message that Hashem gives Moshe at the burning bush and we internalize that message that says, who is going to be with your mouth? Who made you the way you are? It's only me, Hashem. So we're able to say our success against our enemies and our strength is only going to come from Hashem. That is what gives us our potential might and our potential to succeed. So, you know, it's through this refinement, not to, not to fall from this terrible refinement that we're going through, but to use it to bring to 
an, an attunement and a refinement of this mida, of this characteristic of humility in our relationship with Hashem and Eretz Yisrael. So with that, I wish us all a good week. And bye, guys. Well, what a scholar, right? She's like a scholar. She's like a Rebbe. She's a Rebbe. Um, and and she, what she's saying is just, it's, it's true. Uh, one of the greatest themes, I think, throughout all of Jewish history, uh, definitively the exile also, is being humbled. We're constantly being humbled. Our sages teach that, you know, Israel trekked 40 years through the wilderness, through the Midbar, through the desert wilderness, because there's something about the wilderness that they needed to endure to be able to be worthy of redemption. And what was that? Exactly what the Jeremy said, what Tehillah said, the wilderness is inherently humbling. It's impossible to survive as a nation in the wilderness on their own. They needed Hashem. There was no escaping it. And without Hashem, they wouldn't have a chance and they knew it. And they needed to be perpetually cognizant and aware of their complete dependence on Hashem because such an awareness is inherently humbling. And Hashem wants his nation humbled. It's also a happier way to be. It's a happier way to live. You're not, uh, you know, the haughty have no room for Hashem in their hearts because they're so full of themselves. And uh, we needed to be humbled to be worthy of, of redemption. And so I want to talk about redemption today. In some ways, it feels like there is uh, nothing else we really could talk about. I mean, look at me. Mashiach, the temple, army of like this is where we are in history it's uh, you know what else are we going to talk about i'm pretty sure that we all feel it that we are in times that are very clearly leading up to redemption and if there's one thing i think that we are arriving at in this fellowship it's that redemption does not only happen to us but it happens through us as well and i'm speaking very carefully because uh you know, on, on some level, the differences of perspective regarding man's role in redemption has been one of the greatest ideological rifts, not only within Judaism, but also possibly between Judaism and Christianity. But we can save that party for another day. Let's just talk about the man's role in redemption right now, because, you know, this past Shabbat, we had a yeshiva at the farm, primarily uh, American yeshiva kids here in Israel for the year. And many of them said they have no plans to stay in Israel, at least at the beginning of Shabbat. They didn't. I would like to think that at the end of Shabbat at the farm, uh, they were reconsidering. Um, and some of them actually told me that they were. But, uh, you know, you talk to them, they're planning on going back to America, England, Canada, whatever. And the answer I so often get from diaspora Jews when I, when I challenge them as, you know, religious ones at least, with, why they're staying in the exile while they pray three times a day to return to Jerusalem. Their father, grandfather, great-great-grandparents for generations have been praying and crying and weeping to return to Jerusalem, to Israel, and they're staying over there. Why? And uh, and what they tell me is like that they will return when the temple falls down from heaven and they are brought back to the Holy Land on the wings of eagles. And I don't say this disparagingly or mock them as, you know, this is what they've been taught in many of their schools. This is the same reasons that their own rabbis are giving themselves as to why they're not coming back. And they're based, I think, very loosely on certain Jewish sources, which I think are very misunderstood. Um, I've read, I don't know if there's a subject I've 
I've in, I've I've dove into, dived into more than exactly this. And and they just they cleave to this belief that they are passive players in the story of redemption. And somehow they're happy with that. They're okay with that. That their personal role is relegated to prayer alone and the rest is in God's hands. And then, of course, there are those that say, let's leave God out of it. Pick up a sword and fight. You know, victory is in our hands. And we, you know, we saw these in the uh, often forgotten biblical story of the Ma'apilim. You remember this? Who, after the sin of the spies, when Moses said, 40 years, you were all going to die in the desert other than Caleb and Joshua. Then there were those that stood up and said, we're going to do this. We can do this after me. You remember this? After me. And Moshe said, no, don't go fight now. Not now. No, Hashem is not with you. But they went anyways, and they were brutally defeated. They thought that they could still do it, even though Moshe told them that they lost Hashem's blessing and protection for the conquest. So there's, you know, there's the famous story of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, against the Romans. Bar Kokhba was a fierce Judean fighter. Uh, Rabbi Akiva actually thought he was the Messiah. Um, and he was really a great leader, a great military leader. Um, but when he became so confident in his own strength and prowess that he declared that he didn't need Hashem's help, but Hashem just should, shouldn't stand in his way either. Well, it was downhill from there. And, uh, you know, just many would say that the, the great animosity that the religious anti-Zionists had for the secular Zionists who were instrumental in founding the state was that they, they, they fought, but Hashem wasn't in their hearts or their consciousness. And the animosity that the secular Zionists had towards the religious was that they were just waiting passively, even going like sheep to the slaughter, rather than picking up a weapon and fighting for freedom and independence and even just plain, simple survival. You know, I had a moment... I don't know whether I should share this or not, but at the farm, there was some great, great Rebbe, you know, like one of these uh, Hasidic dynasty Rebbe's who came to the farm. And I don't know, you know, I, I actually, I took my gun off and, and I put it before him. And I said, will you bless my gun that I should have success in fighting the enemies of Israel with this weapon? And he's like, I don't know, I'm not, I've never touched a gun. I would never touch. He, sp he spoke about the gun like it was like, like it was somehow like impure and defiled and he would never even touch the gun. I was like, how did this happen? How did this happen where this warrior poet nation, King David, and now he won't even touch the gun, you know? And so I, the, both sides, but, but when you, now when we look at our Torah portion, if we read this Torah portion in its entirety, I think it shows us that the ultimate truth is that we do both. Either one without the other is lacking because there are two back-to-back -back verses which at first seem to, they, they seem to contradict each other. But when understood together, they help us understand the interplay between the role that, that we play in redemption and the role that Hashem plays in redemption. But before I jump straight to the verse, just a little bit of background so we don't just dive right in. Let's remember, you know, where we are here. The 10th plague happened, the death of the firstborns in Egypt. Pharaoh loses his own son, and he finally relents and lets the Jewish people go. And soon thereafter, he and his officers said, what have we done? Oh, my God, get them back. And they, they take their horse-drawn chariots and pursue the Israelites who, who look ahead and they see the Sea of Reeds the Red Sea, and they look behind and they see the entirety of the Egyptian 
Russian army cavalry approaching and they cry out in panic and in fear and Moshe responds with with conviction right he says Moses said to the people do not fear stand fast and see the salvation of Hashem that he will perform for you today for as you have seen Egypt today you shall not see them ever again Hashem shall do battle for you and you shall remain silent right now you read this on its own it, it seems like it would confirm the approach that redemption indeed happens to us. And ultimately we are passive participants who have nothing to contribute and from whom nothing is expected. But then we continue on to the very next verse. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe. Hashem said to Moshe, why do you cry out to me? Speak to the children of Israel and let them journey forth. Let them journey forth. Let the Jews move forward. Journey forth. What was before them? What does that mean, journey forth? The sea was right before them. Command them to take that leap of faith and journey forth into the sea. The message here is that Hashem will fight the entirety of the battle for them once they do their part of proving that they not only believe in Hashem's all-powerfulness, but that they trust in it with their very lives. The Ibn Ezra actually shares a rather intuitive teaching that when Moshe declared, you shall remain silent, that he was referring to their cries to Hashem. At that very moment, at that moment, it was the cries to Hashem that he was saying silent. In that moment, it was not a moment for prayer. It was a moment for action. Action that is a pure reflection of their trust that the miracles of salvation of Hashem are awaiting them. It was just time for them to do their part by expressing and revealing their faith and trust in Hashem literally by diving into the deep end. We've talked about the, the famous story in past fellowships. You know, every fifth grade yeshiva students know well of Nachshon ben Aminadavi, who's a prince from the tribe of Judah, whose faith was that straw that broke the camel's back. His faith was what parted the sea. When Moshe declared Journey forth, the nation stood at the banks of the sea and they were paralyzed with fear. I'm sure that some of them were so deeply in a space of spiritual constraints and scarcity that they had no idea what Moses was even saying when they said journey forth. Journey, journey forth to where? There's nowhere to go. They couldn't even imagine the possibility of the sea parting. Others, I'm sure, uh, could imagine it, but they didn't actually believe in the possibility enough to actually venture into the choppy depths of the sea to what they could only conclude would be certain suicidal death and a funny, silly-looking one at that. But Nachshon did have the eyes to see it. He had what we call Mashiach eyes, right? Messiah eyes. He, he burst forth into the sea all alone. He went up to his ankles, knees, waist, chest, neck, up to his mouth, he was just getting to that place where his tippy toes could no longer touch the seabed. And according to the Midrash, the prayer he cried out with his last breaths above water, he screamed, Oh, Hashem, save me because the water has come up until my soul. I sink into the depths where there is no standing. And at that beautiful moment, the entirety of the sea parted in all its unimaginable glory and magnificence. At that moment when he went so far that there was no turning back. So Rav Kahana brings home the point by revealing what Hashem really seeks from us. 
And this is so important for us right now at this point in history, where we're, so many of us, at least me, I'm trying to figure out what, a, what does Hashem want from me? What, what Hashem seeks from us when we're in these times of distress, what does He seek from us? Maximal prayer from the depths of our hearts together with maximal efforts from actual deeds. Maximum prayer and maximum efforts. Because although in truth, all of our efforts really amount to nothing compared to the omnipotent power of Hashem, our actions are the, the true expression of our hearts. And that is what Hashem wants more than anything else. He wants our hearts. That's what this is all about. So just saying words is not enough. They may be sincere, and they may not be sincere. We can never really know, even from ourselves, only by demonstrating our utmost faith in Hashem by fulfilling His will to the point of no return can Hashem know, and perhaps even more importantly, can we know that our faith is true. And that's why I'm so optimistic about what's happening in Israel right now. I really, this week was a much better week for me. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, because when I look at the nation today, I really see that we're doing both. I see that as a nation, not only are we praying, and I've gone to many, many prayer services, and they don't even call them prayer services. It's like, like just calling out to Hashem. We come together and we're just calling out to Hashem. But, um, but we're at the very least trying to do everything we can to express our faith in Hashem through our actions. You know, we're, we're, we're willing to suffer and to sacrifice, to sacrifice everything if need be. I don't know if I can say that personally about myself. There are moments I definitely feel like that, but I don't know if I can personally say that I'm always there. But I do feel like the nation of Israel is on that path. And, uh, and so I want to show you a video of a battalion of soldiers. And when you look at it for the first time, it looks like they're just posing for, you know, a just say cheese photo. But listen to the words here. Now they they aren't saying cheese. They are praying to the God of Israel in the words of the sages and the prophets and in their own words. They are pouring out their hearts and chanting, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hashem is the king. Hashem was the king. Hashem will be the king forevermore. They're crying out, Ana Adonai Hoshiana, please Hashem save us. Ana Adonai Hatzlichana, please Hashem give us victory. They even threw a few words in there at the end for the English speakers. You heard that? Thank you, Hashem. 
thank you, Hashem. They're begging to Hashem. They're pleading to Hashem. They're pouring their hearts out before Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. For those people that say, oh, Israel is a secular nation. No, they don't understand anything. And by the way, just so you know, I go to all these different units constantly. I'm encountering soldiers all the time. The secular ones are not secular. The secular ones are not secular. They're they're people of faith. At this point, the, those that are guarding the villages could have been released already. But if they wanted to, uh, you know, petition to be released and different soldiers, they've been in for three months. And um, and they're staying in because they're so committed to the God of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And so that's what we see. You know, it's, it's as if we see Moses with his hands held high in faith and prayer, holding up his staff, merged with Joshua and the soldiers, swords in hands, fighting Amalek. Right? And because... Because that is who we are fighting. That is who we are, are fighting. That is who we were fighting then. That's who we're fighting now. We are fighting Amalek. And I want to talk about that for a second. Because, you know, sometimes um, Jews, like everybody else, can get lost in the uh, the trees of the forest. What's the saying? You know, we could get legalistic sometimes. And some people have been debating. I've been privy to many of these debates. Whether Hamas is actually... Amalek or not. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say Amalek? I know we have new members of the fellowship. Raise your hand if you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm looking through. Okay. Okay. So, you know, if you don't, if you want to back to an explanation of Amalek, send me a message. But, you know, there's this debate happening. Are we fighting Amalek? Is this really Amalek? That, that ancient character from the Bible that was descended both from Esau, the grandson of Esau, uh, and also through Ishmael, it's like the rejection of the rejection of the rejection by, by Hashem and that deep, passionate hatred and resentment all the way from the book of Genesis is so overwhelmingly fixated that, that that's who you can tell. That's who we're, we're Amalek. That's the question. Are we fighting Amalek? And my answer is yes, we are absolutely fighting Amalek. That's who we're facing. That's what this is about. And... Um, you know, I, I spent actually a lot of Shabbat talking to it. To me, it's very clear that we're fighting Amalek because spiritually, Hamas and the people of Gaza, the, the, they are no different than the Amalek that we faced from our in our exodus from Egypt. They're Amalek in every single way in which Amalek is identified. Have, have any of you thought about this? Raise your hand if you've given thought to the question, if we're actually fighting Amalek. And raise your hand if you believe that they are Amalek. I'm not going to judge. I don't. What do I know? So that that's a lot of you. I think it doesn't surprise me. I certainly do because the hatred of Amalek is pure. It's unadulterated. It's untouchable. The hatred of Amalek from generation to generation is driven by the impulse to suppress Jewish destiny and wipe every last Jew off the face of the earth. They can't be bribed. They can't be bought off. They can't be, um, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's purity at, at, the, at the greatest level. They can't be pacified. It's the singular animated purpose and principle for their entire lives from birth until death. From generation to generation, their war against the nation of Israel is an expression of nothing less than their hatred for the God of Israel. Because remember, when the world stood terrified at the Israelites 
because of the power displayed by the God of Israel as he wreaked vengeance and decimated the Egyptian superpower. At that moment, when the world stood in awe and fear, right then, with the brazen chutzpah, right then is when Amalek attacked with all their might. And like cooled off, that's what the sages say, cooled off the kinetic heat that Israel was exuding, the heat of godliness, and they, they, cooled, they put some doubt in there. Oh, they are human. They are mortal. Amalek attacked them, and Amalek survived. Amalek, their territory was not being threatened. There was no element of protection or self-defense motivating their attack. They were willing to fight and die for the mere chance to wipe out the Israelites from the face of the earth, uprooting them at the moment of their birth as a nation, seeking to wipe them out before they could fulfill their mission of receiving the Torah, uh, before they could enter the land and inherit the promised land, because Amalek knew intuitively that they would eventually when they go into the land of Israel and receive the Torah, that would lead to the fulfillment of their divine destiny of bringing knowledge of Hashem to the world as water covers the sea. Because it's that knowledge of Hashem they hate. Their message is one of doubt and confusion and coincidence and happenstance. And when they saw the nation of Israel emerging from the sea with faith and trust and resolve, they knew the great potential of that moment. And they knew that no matter what the price they needed to attack. And, uh, you know, it's in those pivotal moments of great spiritual potential when Amalek attacks throughout history. They attack when we are upon the, the precipice of further advancing our mission of sanctifying and amplifying Hashem's name in the world. Rabbi Terrigan actually points this out, that after this attack, we see Amalek arise again when Israel actually inherits the land and appoints a king, you remember who I'm talking about, the story with King Saul. We're approaching a stage in history that now we've entered the land, we have a king, and we could move forth. We could potentially move forth to building the temple and bringing history to a magnificent close. And it was due to the great potential of that moment that Amalek uh, reared their ugly heads and unsheathed their vicious and merciless swords. And Amalek struck and with the blessing of Hashem, as well as the guidance of Shmuel, Samuel, the prophet, the prophet, King Saul's army prevailed. But uh, due to a fundamental blemish in his character and his leadership, we won't, I don't want to go into all the details, Saul does not finish the war. Uh, he doesn't finish the war. You know, it's, it strikes deep hearing that right now, not finishing the war. That's all we're talking about. He doesn't finish it. He doesn't see it through to its completion as Samuel had ordered him. And Amalek lives to fight another day. If Saul had finished Agag, the king of Amalek then, and not let him live that one last night, our sages teach us, there would have been no Haman, and there would have been no Hitler, and there would have been no October 7th, and we would have fulfilled our national mission and brought perfection to the world right then. But alas, we fell short, and evil continued its presence in the world, and the battle moves on. It sounds so epic and like legendary, but this is what it is. This is what we're facing. We see Amalek arise again as the Jewish people stood on the cusp of returning to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. And at that moment, Haman, 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 right? He arose with his genocidal plan, right? Not only to prevent the return of, of the Jews to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, not only to stop that, but just to wipe them out altogether. 
together, genocide. He rallied allies in his quest to to wipe them out, um, and he seemed to be heading for victory, but through Mordechai and Esther and their faith and their trust in Hashem and their willingness to sacrifice everything, their lives included, for the Jewish people and for Hashem, the Jewish people were saved. Um, see the book of Esther if you want further details about that. Um, we'll actually be diving in deep on that as a Purim approaches. I thought it was going to be in a few weeks, and then I realized, no, this lunar year, there's Adar Aleph and Adar Bet, the first and the second month of Adar. Um, seven out of every 19 years, there's a leap year, and so this is one of those years. And so we have uh, something like six weeks before Purim comes, but we'll be talking about that then. Anyways, moving on, we see Amalek arise again as the 2,000-year exile was winding down and the Jews started their return to the Promised Land. Right, Amalek rose with a vengeance, a fury, um, in the form of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and in the and that I, I think that was the most successful attempt since the Exodus from Egypt, where Amalek really sought to fully annihilate and utterly erase every single Jew in the world, and they almost succeeded. And in each of these cases, however, we see this fascinating pattern. While Amalek arises with this focus and dedication to stop Jewish destiny in its tracks and to eradicate the Jewish people at these pivotal points in our national journey. Think about this, because I'm not sure about this. This just came to me, I, I think, today, and I really need to run it by, but I think that in every single situation, it's Amalek himself who actually catalyzes the very fulfillment of our mission that he's seeking to stop, that he's seeking to arrest. Right? It's Amalek himself who moves Jewish destiny forward to the next phase. From Agag, Right, whose war against Israel led to the fall of King Saul and the anointing of King David, who we know is the progenitor of the Davidic dynasty that Mashiach will be coming from. Um, Haman's attack, which led to Esther being queen, which led to the return to Zion and the building of the Second Temple. Um, to Hitler, who catalyzed the Jews to return to the land. There was Aliyah happening before Hitler rose to power but not anything like when Hitler and the Holocaust, that catalyzed the Jews to return to the land of Israel in mass and to build an army and to liberate the land of our forefathers, setting the stage for what will be God willing, the final redemption. And so the last, the very last verse of this week's Torah portion makes it very clear. This is the last verse. Hashem wars against Amalek from generation to generation. Every Every Passover, every Passover Seder, we recite the prophetic words. You know, if you ask any kid, like, what are the words that they remember? This is among the top three. And every generation, they arise against us to destroy us, but the Holy One, blessed be He, saves us from their hands. And now we face the Amalek of our generation. Is, I mean, is there a better description of Hamas? the people of Gaza, Iran, and the global jihad, than Amalek? I'm not sure I could say that every person in the global jihad, maybe not, but Iran, Gaza, Hamas, yes, yes, yes. You know, we could go into all the detail. Every house has either genocidal paraphernalia, genocidal kids' books, or weapons, or tunnels, 
or or all of them, every single one, all of my friends that are going into Gaza are telling me personally that they did not walk into one house that did not have one of those things. They're, they're single-minded, pathological obsession with wiping out Jews in Israel has been exposed again and again. I always sort of expect the world to just open their eyes for a second and be like, okay, let's just take a step back. What is with these people? Let's say the occupation is bad or whatever. That is real commitment and OC, obsessive, compulsive obsession with these Jews. What is the deal with them? You know, with, with, the, with the billions of dollars that they've received, they could have built the most prosperous beachside tourist destination on earth. But that just doesn't interest them in the slightest. With all the billions that were showered upon them and the mistaken belief that they could be bought or pacified or placated by material wealth, they immediately sunk all of it into weapons, into terror tunnels, into every means necessary to accomplish their final mission of October 7th thing, all of Israel and every last Jew in the world. And by the way, how, how else can we tell it's, it's Amalek? I mean, this is not like a proof proof, but it, you know, it's not only from their dedication to annihilating us, but from their Haman-like alliance building in their global mission of annulling the very idea of truth and goodness through lies and distortions and deceit, all aimed at weakening the nation of Israel, at humiliating the God of Israel and dividing the land of Israel. So we can tell their Amalek from the fact that the International Court of Justice in The Hague just ruled. You, you guys are following this. You saw about the ruling. Did, you, did any of you watch it? Actually hear? I went to watch it. I wanted to see it. I wanted to. It was... It was biblically dramatic. It felt to me biblically, all of the judges, all of them, other periodically, the Israel judge, Aaron Barak, who also, by the way, voted against Israel. He voted against Israel. So badly is his desire to be loved by the nations of the world. I mean, this is the original judge that did that judicial coup that made the Supreme Court this totalitarian group of unelected um, ideologues. But either way, um, it was powerful, and and the, they just ruled, I believe it was on Shabbat itself, that we can no longer even say the word Amalek. That's right. You know what's, what's happening in The Hague, the ICJ, putting Israel on trial? It's actually one of the most absurdly hypocritical moments in world history. Israel's being accused and condemned for genocide against a nation whose entire identity is founded upon the mission of committing genocide against Israel. Right? Tehillah made that brilliant video about the prophetic relevance of the trial as a whole. If you haven't seen it, you really need to. But I think it was actually on Shabbat that the court issued their rulings, all of which are, of course, laughable and ridiculous, but it included demanding Israel submit a report. So Israel needs to go and submit a report within the month to the ICJ of all of their actions. I mean, the hubris, the arrogance of the nations coming together like this is just beyond. By the way, Uganda. Good for Uganda. Uganda voted for Israel 100% of the time, more than Israel voted for Israel. Okay? Uganda. And, and by the way, you know, in this week's uh, Haftorah portion, um, uh, hold off, Tabitha, on that, on that video. In the, in the Haftorah portion uh, with uh, Devorah and Barak, fighting Sisera. At the end in her song, you hear her say the different tribes 
and who stood rose to the occasion and defended uh, Israel and who didn't and who ran away and who were cowards. And Reuven, uh, for some reason, was not so brave. Um, Asher was. There were different, I believe it was Asher that was. But, you know, there there is a song already being written about these days and our times. And I believe that this uh, this woman judge from Uganda will be remembered for standing for truth and for Israel. And all of you, of course, have already been long ago uh, recorded as who you are and where you stand. There's no question about that. But anyways, Israel needed to submit a report within the month to the ICJ of all their actions. And also hearing hearing the um, what the ICJ was saying, they said... Israel needs to submit a report and to prove that they're not committing genocide and they're not um, involved in um, destroying the fertility of Palestinian women. I mean, just the accusations are so insane, and we have to prove that we're not doing these accusations that they're accusing us of. Anyways, here's just a piece of the announcement of the verdict. The court considers that, with regard to the present situation... Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing groups, members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part the group as such. The court is also of the view that Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Those Strip. are some very loaded words, and they're selected very, very carefully. You know, Israel should act as much as possible in order not to violate the terms of the treaty and to prevent internal, internal incitement to commit genocide, meaning quoting the Torah and Amalek is illegal for the court. That's essentially what they're saying. I think they actually went and said that in the details, the, the word Amalek, the word Amalek, because at some point... Netanyahu did say right after this October 7th that that's the made an analogy to Amalek. And uh, so, OK, so are you ready for this? Think about it like this. During the very reading of the Torah portion in which Amalek first attacked the nation of Israel. Thousands of years later, Amalek himself organizes a prosecution against the nation of Israel which ruled that Israel is no longer allowed to even say Amalek. Right? Is that rich or what? You can't make this stuff up. And now there's videos coming out that are actually showing that um, that the South African, the ANC, is a complete and total proxy bought and paid for by Iran. This is all like, this is Iran's, you know, puppet, ANC, South Africa, they're, they're a willing puppet, but they're a puppet of Iran. And, and this is what they're coming to say. Israel can't even say Amalek, and Amalek is engineering such a thing on the Shabbat where we're reading about Amalek's attack. And so here we are now, yet again, 
facing down Amalek in what surely seems to be the it seems it's the final showdown. And just as Amalek always does, they attack us with the greatest ferocity when we are on the precipice of advancing Jewish history towards our final mission. And without knowing it, Hamas too will not only fail miserably in their mission of wiping us out, but they themselves will be the catalyst looking back that launches us into our accomplishing our ultimate mission. You know, because up until October 7th, I really think most Jews didn't necessarily feel like we were on the precipice of redemption. Talking in such a way, most people would be like, oh, okay, okay, I don't know, I don't think so. And if, if, if anything, but, but I, I don't think we as a nation really experienced that we were on the cusp of moving forward Jewish destiny to its final stage of Mashiach and building the Holy Temple. If we were left up to our own devices, we'd have to deal with the periodic terror, but it was just enough that we'd be able to, to handle it and deal with it. And we just try to keep moving forward, innovating technology and creating new methodologies of agriculture and seeking to bring advancement to Israel and prosperity to the world and just doing our thing, right? But in comes Hamas and wakes us up from our collective coma and our national amnesia, leading the nation really from the bottom up Emet min ha'aret titzmach, right? Truth blossoms from the earth itself, from the bottom up, to wake up to the truth of who we are and what we're here to accomplish, the real why of who we are. You know, what, what, what is Israel in, in their boring, bland, visionless, uh, visionlessness? What do they call this war? It's like they pressed the cliched word button, right? And they, they went, and it's like, Iron, okay, next word, swords, iron swords, whatever. That's the name of the war. It is just such a boring, bland name. But what does Hamas call this war? We know it, the Al-Aqsa flood. Al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount. What does this war have anything to do with Jerusalem or the Temple Mount? It has everything to do with the Temple. The government press office may not know it, but the nation certainly is waking up. And I'm telling you, don't pay too much attention to what you hear coming out of the government spokesmen or Knesset politicians. Listen to the people on the street. Listen to the soldiers on the front lines in Gaza, on the front lines in, in Lebanon. You know, I, I have yet to go to any army unit or any army base where I do not see on the arms of the soldiers either this or this. I haven't gone to one. Usually, what do you see? The Israeli flag or the symbol of the unit? I, I was in Golani, so you see the Golani tree. That's what I used to have, but not now. Now, the most uh, sought-after uniform patches are Temple, or the Beit Mikdash, and Mashiach. Here's just like some of the stacks that are going out. I'm constantly getting requests for them. Here's Yishai. Vash wanted me to make a cartoon uh, thing of Yishai with his Mashiach patch, so that's that, and that's what I wear, and that's what that's what they that's what we're all wearing, because that's what we're really fighting for. Redemption is coming, and it's up to us whether we want to be spectators or participants, because it's in our hands to go outside after this fellowship to turn our eyes and our heart to Hashem and say, Hineini, Hineini. Here I am. God, I stand here before you as a willing vessel. I want nothing more to bring your light and your redemption to Israel and to all of mankind. Hashem, guide me. Guide me. 
to know what you want me to do. I'm here offering you not only my words of faith and my words of trust, but I'm offering you my very life. And so that's where we are, my friends. That's all of us here in this fellowship. Maximum faith, maximum prayer, maximum effort. Um, because remember, this is not happening to us. This is happening for us. And really remembering that, remembering it is able to transform horrible challenges to great opportunities. Jeremy and I are on our way downtown now to join this massive mission of, of Jews that are coming together to decide how to journey forth in faith, whether it be to conquer and settle Gaza. I have signed up that I've said that my family will go down if the opportunity prevents itself, presents itself to, to build and to settle Gaza myself. And tens of thousands of others have as well. And uh, we want to go down to Gaza. We want to declare full sovereignty in Judea and Samaria. We want to conquer and settle Gaza. Because remember, my friends, that's what this is all about. This is really an opportunity from Hashem for us to open our eyes and say, if this is what is, you've done to us, Hashem, you've humbled us. We're humble now. Please let us know what we can do from here. The opportunity to be a part of the greatest redemption in the history of mankind is in our hands. And I want to bless each and every one of us, each and every one of you, that we have the eyes to see it, the courage to journey forth, and the trust and the faith to do it. So now it's my honor to bless all of you. The blessing of Aaron the High Priest. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yechunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.